So, tonight I would like to speak about right intention. It's a topic that ties in with many things we have heard and said in the last few days and that echoes many of the things that have been spoken about. And in a way it's also about some of the principles and processes and in a way also the rational underlying the kind of practice that we are doing. In the teachings of the Buddha, this aspect of intention plays a central role. So the forces that drive our actions and choices, our intentions, our volitions, our motivation are relevant because they really have the power to shape our life and our world and to bring happiness or suffering. And that that's why it's so crucial to really become aware of this aspect of our experience, to bring more awareness and wisdom to our intentions. Because if you think of it, how often do we act based on a conscious choice, really based on deep reflection? How often do we speak and act in ways that are truly aligned with our deepest values and aspirations? And how often do we find ourselves not really knowing what we're doing, perhaps just drifting along, muddling our way through, or else being driven by some reflexes or habits, and sometimes acting in ways that might even go against what we know better, driven by forces of craving or aversion or irritation. So often we are not very clear about our intentions, but we just find ourselves acting and reacting in more or less coherent ways. So what is going on here? In his book, The Mind Illuminated, Chuladasa offers a great and very helpful metaphor for our mind that illustrates our situation nicely. The metaphor of a boardroom. Chuladasa compares our conscious mind to a boardroom in a corporation where the representatives of different departments are holding a meeting. Actually, this is a never-ending meeting. It is an almost continuous meeting going on all our life long. Not a very <laughs> great idea. So, it's going on every day, sometimes even at night in our dreams. It's a constant inner discussion on what to do, how to act, how to decide from one moment to the next. And in this boardroom, all the board members symbolizing our inner tendencies, but also the sense channels, have all their own agenda and they try to persuade the rest of the boardroom to follow and support their agenda. So in every moment our behavior depends on which tendency can prevail over the others. Maybe in one moment Mrs. Dow to question the purpose of this whole meditation thing gains the upper hand 
and confuses everybody by asking strange questions and making remarks such as, what's the point anyway? This is too hard for me and it's boring. And then shortly after that, the knee informs the board that it senses a strong pain and wants to stretch the leg. But then it is being cut off by Mr. Discipline, who points out that the meditation period is not yet over and that he wants to stick to his commitment. To his support, also the young Mr. Good Boy says it would make a bad impression if he would move. And so he doesn't want the other meditators to think badly of him. So we don't move in spite of the pain. But then, luckily, Mrs. Desire offers some nice, distracting daydreams as a way of coping with the unpleasantness of the situation. And the whole boardroom happily follows this suggestion for a while, just going off on some daydream, ignoring the protests of Mr. Discipline. Until, finally, the ear reports the sound of a bell. which lets the board members pick up their discussion again about what to do now. Let's have a cup of tea. No, let's put on the shoes and go outside doing the walking meditation. And so on and on it goes. So, as you can see, our behavior depends on the boardroom's decisions from moment to moment and who the most powerful members in the boardroom are. And this boardroom can function in a more or less coherent way or unified way and it can at times function rather chaotically. When there are big disagreements and tensions between the different members and not much ability to come to some compromise or to agree on some overall goal or aspiration, then the behavior is likely to be rather erratic and impulsive. If, however, the boardroom functions harmoniously and smoothly, the behavior will be more coherent and steady. So what should we do in this situation? Wouldn't it be great if the boardroom would learn to function more smoothly? Wouldn't it be great if the whole boardroom could agree on some worthy, wholesome goal, some purpose, and if all the board members would cooperate in this rather than work against each other? From a Dharma standpoint, the answer is clear. It is important that the whole boardroom of our mind learns to align with wholesome intentions and work towards them rather than being pulled in countless different directions. The reason for this is that, as the Buddha emphasized, intentions play a key role for our happiness. He said, Everything rests on the tip of motivation. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. If we want to find happiness, we need to become careful with regard to our intentions and learn to live in a more intentional way. The thing is that the intention behind an action has karmic effects. 
meaning it leads to happiness or suffering. Actually, the word karma refers to the wholesome or unwholesome intentions behind actions. Karma in the Buddhist context is not about the outcome. Like when we sometimes hear this, oh, you are so lucky, you have a lot of good karma. That's a really wrong understanding to identify karma with the results. What the Buddha meant, and he redefined the concept, you know, what he meant by karma was the causes that can bring about happiness or suffering. So he meant the the seeds that can lead to certain fruits. He said, it is volition that I call karma. For having willed, one acts by body, speech or mind. Whatever we think, say or do is based on some intention, whether we are aware of it or not. There is always an intention operating. Um, Carol mentioned this a few days ago. Sometimes we are aware of our intentions and sometimes we even form them consciously and sometimes they are just happening on an unconscious level. Sometimes also we don't want to acknowledge the intentions that are there, but that of course doesn't make them go away. Intentions can be wholesome, and by this we mean they have good, wholesome results. They lead to happiness and contentment. And they can also be unwholesome, meaning that they have negative results, that they lead to suffering, conflict, discontent. And as we have seen in this boardroom metaphor, there can be an inner conflict or struggle between different intentions, pulling us in different directions. On the other hand, when there is one strong overall intention of the whole heart-mind, when there is a unification of the heart-mind, there is a sense of alignment, of clarity, of harmony. Actually, just to mention this, the fact that the Buddha emphasized the intention behind an action rather than the action itself set him apart from the mainstream religions of his time, of ancient India, which were mainly interested with the very concrete rituals, with the actions, and which held the view that one needs to follow certain prescribed rituals, um, like washing oneself in the Ganges or tending a holy fire, if one wants to purify bad karma. In contrast, the Buddha pointed out that the mere action, the physical action or the words that we say, is in itself not so relevant, but that the fruit of an action depends much more on the intention with which we do it. So even actions that look identical from outside could have very different outcomes depending on the intentions driving them. So, just to give you obvious examples, an act of generosity, you know, like making a lunch donation here, for instance, also, can be an expression of genuine 
generosity, but it could also be motivated by a fear of making a bad impression or hopes for some future rewards. Or if someone is speaking in a very fierce way, this can be a sign that he or she is very angry, but it could also be an expression of compassion, of wisdom. So this means we should bring our main attention to the intention with which we act and not get lost in the outer forms, in rules, in rituals. Of course, there is some value to forms, to rituals, you know, like bowing, for instance. But if we lose the connection with their deeper intention, they just become totally shallow and mechanical, meaningless in a way. So just reciting a mantra, even if you do it hundred thousand times, will not save you or save anybody if you are disconnected from the, the meaning and the purpose of this mantra. And on the other hand, if we are doing something in a truly heartful way with a good intention, it will have beneficial effects. I remember, but not so clearly, unfortunately, how Cherki Nima Rinpoche once told the story of a Tibetan yogi, a practitioner, who somehow misunderstood the mantra that he was supposed to practice. He was given a mantra by his teacher and somehow he remembered it wrongly. But he was a very devoted practitioner and gave himself fully to this recitation, doing it day and night and with a pure and, and enthusiastic heart. One day another yogi passed by and heard what he was reciting and he was very upset to hear that this yogi was uh, reciting the mantra in a totally wrong way. So uh, I, I don't know what it was exactly, but it was just anyway completely wrong and nonsensical. However, when he confronted this yogi, um, he realized that this guy had actually attained quite a high degree of realization because his practice was based on a very deep and sincere motivation, even if the syllables were completely wrong. Yeah. Okay, so of course I should also say that only having a wholesome intention often is not enough. We also need some discernment to know <laughs> when to act and how to act and we need certain skills. But really the most crucial aspect is the intention. So it's always a question out of which motivation is someone acting? Out of love? Out of wisdom? Out of envy? Out of a desire for prestige? Hmm. Regarding other people, it's good to remind us that often we cannot say for sure we are simply not in a position to judge other people's behavior because we don't have the full access to what is uh, their inner process. And with regard to ourselves, it is important that we develop more awareness around our intentions and then that we consciously choose and nurture those intentions that are wholesome 
that serve us and that serve other people in the best way. So the question then, of course, might come up, okay, which intentions should we cultivate? Which intentions should we give high priority? I'd like to now read you some excerpts from the Dveda Vitaka Sutta, the discourse on the two kinds of thoughts. In this Dveda Vitaka Sutta, the Buddha describes how he came to understand before his awakening that sensual desire, ill will and cruelty lead to suffering and that their opposites uh, thoughts of renunciation, of non-ill will, or you could say loving kindness, and non-cruelty or compassion lead in the direction of liberation. So, practitioners, before my enlightenment, while, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, it occurred to me, Suppose that I divide my thoughts into two classes. Then I set on one side thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will and thoughts of cruelty. And I set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of non-ill will and thoughts of non-cruelty. As I abided thus, diligent, ardent and resolute, a thought of sensual desire arose in me. I understood thus. This thought of sensual desire has arisen in me. This leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbāna. So the Buddha realized that sensual desire leads to suffering, not only his own, but also the suffering of others and how it leads away from Nibbāna. This is something we really need to understand and see in our direct experience. How sense desire leads to suffering, how it clouds the mind, how it obstructs the wisdom. Now, why? What is so problematic about desiring pleasant sights, sounds, tastes, smells, touches or thoughts? What is so problematic about wanting a sweet dessert or a warm shower? These can seem like fairly innocent wishes. Really, the main problem is that sensual desire makes us unfree. It makes us dependent and it leads to a sense of deficiency. Desire suggests to us that happiness comes from getting something, having something that we don't have right now. A cookie, a cup of tea, a job, a praise, new smartphone, new clothes, whatever. Maybe we're feeling down and just looking for some comfort Maybe we're feeling quite okay and we just want more. So, desire is the eternal promise of an illusory happiness. And illusory because, as we start to notice, the fulfillment of our wishes and wants doesn't deliver what we hoped for. 
yes, they can bring a short-lived happiness, a short-lived relief, symptomatic relief, really. But in the long run, we realize that desire is a bottomless pit. The nature of desire is that it desires. And it's insatiable. It doesn't just stop because you have satisfied it by one object. Get this one object and sooner or later desire will find another desirable object to want, to need right now. Do you know that? Yeah? <laughs> no. <laughs> Basically, desire creates much unhappiness in several ways. First, it creates a split and a conflict between how things are right now in this moment and how we want them to be. So immediately there is an inner tension and that is actually unpleasant. Second, desire impacts how we perceive, think and act. It obstructs our wisdom. Our perception narrows down on a tunnel vision, a self-centered view. So we might even act without considering the impact of our actions on other beings. So much unethical behavior is based on desire. And third, the satisfaction of desires almost, almost always comes at some costs. We need to put in time, energy or money to satisfy our desires. And we use so many natural resources, water, land, air. We kill countless animals to a degree that we now see the catastrophic consequences on a global level. So desire can create enormous suffering. Okay, so that was this. Now the Buddha then continues. When I considered this leads to my own affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to others' affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to the affliction of both, it subsided in me. When I considered this obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties and leads away from Nibbana, it subsided in me. Whenever a thought of sensual desire arose in me, I abandoned it, I removed it, did away with it. So, when he recognized the negative consequences of sensual desire, this desire dissolved in his mind. Then the Buddha continues speaking about ill will and cruelty. As I abided thus, diligent, ardent and resolute, a thought of ill will arose in me. I understood thus. This thought of ill will has arisen in me. This leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbana. As I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, a thought of cruelty arose in me. I understood thus, this sort of cruelty has arisen in me. This leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, 
and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties and leads away from Nibbana. The next two qualities that he points out are ill-will and cruelty. Ill-will is a quality that wants negative things for other beings, a hostile and aggressive mind state. And cruelty is even more intense. It wants other beings to suffer, to feel pain. It is obvious that these two qualities lead to suffering for sure, other beings will suffer a lot if we treat them with ill will or cruelty. But we too, we suffer when these qualities are present in our mind. They afflict us, they burn us, they separate us from other beings. They are like the red hot coal that we want to throw against someone and in the same moment we burn our own hand. And yet, as we know, ill will and cruelty are not rare phenomena. They are widespread. We meet them both in our own minds again and again. And we meet them in the world on the collective level in the form of war, of violence and other things. Also here the Buddha continues... When I considered this leads to my own affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to others' affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to the affliction of both, it subsided in me. When I considered this obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties and leads away from Nibbana, it subsided in me. Whenever a thought of ill will arose in me, I abandoned it, removed it, did away with it. Whenever a thought of cruelty arose in me, I abandoned it, removed it, did away with it. Again, it was through seeing clearly the negative consequences of ill will and cruelty that the Buddha understood the unwholesome nature of ill will and cruelty. So for us too, if we clearly understand with wisdom the suffering that comes from ill will and cruelty, these will, this will counteract the unwholesome forces. Sometimes when the wisdom is really strong, just understanding this, like in the case of the Buddha, will enable the mind to simply drop such an impulse. Sometimes uh, we are not able to, then the wisdom might not be strong enough to completely avoid the ill will or cruelty, but still it is so wholesome to at least be aware of these unwholesome forces being present. Even just seeing them clearly with mindfulness um, tends to uh, slow down the process, weaken the process a little bit. Um, and that is already a big step forward in the cultivation of the mind. So it's better to know that we are acting unskillfully, to be aware of it rather than acting without any awareness at all. 
And maybe you have noticed the Buddha didn't say that we should judge ourselves and castigate ourselves when we find that there are unwholesome tendencies. Because that's so often our normal reaction, that we feel ashamed, that we judge ourselves for having such mind states like irritation or impatience or anger or a grudge. But that's not what the Buddha did. He considered, it says, in a very cool way, this leads to my own suffering, to the other's suffering. So I don't want to pursue this any further. And maybe you have also noticed that those three thoughts of sense desire, ill will and cruelty, correspond to two of the three root poisons that create suffering, which are desire, greed and aversion. Uh, desire, greed on the one hand and aversion. And the third root poison, ignorance or delusion, is not mentioned explicitly here, but it underlies both of them. Okay, let's continue in the sutta now turning to the wholesome qualities. As I abided thus, diligent, ardent and resolute, a thought of renunciation arose in me. I understood thus. This sort of renunciation has arisen in me. This does not lead to my own affliction or to others' affliction or to the affliction of both. It aids wisdom, does not cause difficulties and leads to Nibbana. As I abided thus, diligent, ardent and resolute, a thought of non-ill will arose in me. I understood thus. This thought of non-ill will has arisen in me. This does not lead to my own affliction, to others' affliction or to the affliction of both. It aids wisdom, does not cause difficulties and leads to Nibbana. As I abided thus, diligent, ardent and resolute, a thought of non-cruelty arose in me. I understood thus. This thought of non-cruelty has arisen in me. This does not lead to my own affliction or to others' affliction or to the affliction of both. It aids wisdom, does not cause difficulties and leads to Nibbana. The Buddha to be saw that thought of renunciation, of non-ill will and non-cruelty do not lead to affliction, but ultimately they lead to Nibbana, to the heart's release. And maybe you have noticed that those three thoughts are exactly the ones that we find mentioned as right intention in the Noble Eightfold Path. For those of you who know this Noble Eightfold Path, it has been mentioned here, that teaching about those eight um, practices that we need to engage in, eight factors that we should develop. So right intention is the intention with which we should uh, walk the path and this really underscores the importance of those three thoughts. With 
renunciation basically we mean the opposite of desire, of grasping, of clinging. It is the act of letting go, of letting be, of non-grasping. We can renounce many things. We can renounce material stuff, immaterial things like fame or praise. We can renounce expectations that we have with regard to other people, ideas how they should behave. We can renounce a certain level of comfort. Yeah, endless possibilities. Of course, renunciation can sound like not a very attractive idea, like something that is going to make us unhappy or frustrated. But this is only as long as we are still holding on to the illusion that happiness comes from clinging to something. Holding on to people, to situations, to ideas, to expectations, so often we are just not aware how tiring it is, how much, uh, you know, um, how much we are stuck and in bondage from holding on. But then someday maybe we understand that those things that we are attached to, to, that we so much worry about, that seem so important, are totally fleeting, impermanent, unreliable, as beautiful as they may seem. And that we too are mortal, that in the moment of death, we all will have to renounce absolutely everything our beloved ones, our worldly roles, our status, our body, all our possessions. So the more we see this clearly, we just wake up from our trance of always wanting this, wanting that. And instead, we start to discover a much deeper peace and freedom that comes from letting go from releasing this grip, this holding on. Basically, this is true renunciation, the renunciation that is based on a wise understanding, the wise understanding of this impermanent, ungraspable, empty nature of all phenomena, rather than some, you know, ideal that we have. And, of course, This can then easily also manifest as generosity if we are not holding on so much to our possessions, to things, to ideas. We simply and naturally become much more generous. We happily share what we have with other beings. And as we learn to relax more, to to renounce more, we feel less burdened. There is less tightness, less heaviness. Maybe you have felt this lightness of being also here on retreat in a situation where you have chosen to renounce many things. This is really the freedom and happiness that comes from needing less. Okay, so that's the first of the three intentions that we need to cultivate, to renounce. The second quality is non-ill will, or we could say loving kindness, goodwill. 
metta. This is the opposite of ill will. And by practicing goodwill, loving kindness, we can overcome all the tendencies to ill will. And as many of you may know, by this we mean this quality that deeply cares and is concerned about the well-being of all beings. It is a, a warm quality of the heart. Metta is an attitude of friendship that wishes all beings well, whether they are near or far, big or small, young or old. Loving-kindness releases the heart from the prison of self-centeredness and aversion and fear and enables us to open to love, to, to connection. And as we have heard, like all the Brahma-viharas, loving-kindness is, when it's fully developed, a boundless state of mind that includes each and every being that we meet unconditionally. And the third quality, non-cruelty, also called harmlessness, can be cultivated by the opposite of cruelty, which is compassion, which is the, this ability and willingness to care about suffering and to have this wish that all beings may be free from suffering. It is the willingness to feel the pain the difficult, to open to it and to offer our presence, our empathy and also to seek ways to alleviate the suffering. Also compassion as the second of the four Brahma-viharas has this boundless and unconditional quality. And we have spoken a lot about it and we are still speaking so I'm going to leave it here. Anyway, what we can see is that what the Buddha says about the fundamental attitude that we should cultivate on our path is a, an attitude that is not attached to things, that doesn't cling to anything, but also an attitude at the same time that is deeply relational and caring. So the path to freedom is not just about getting away you know from this world of samsara but it is also about opening to other beings and manifesting love there is really i find a, a beautiful and delicate balance that we want to develop to be free from clinging on the one hand and at the same time being deeply connected with all beings So, if we now go back to the discourse, the Buddha then goes on to explain something very crucial that helps us understand the core principle of mind cultivation. He says, Practitioners, whatever a practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of his or her mind. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of sensual desire, one has abandoned the thought of renunciation, and then one's mind inclines to thoughts of sensual desire. 
if one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of ill-will, one has abandoned the thought of non-ill-will, and then one's mind inclines to thoughts of ill-will. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of cruelty, one has abandoned the thought of non-cruelty, and then one's mind inclines to thoughts of cruelty. This is the core principle we need to understand. Whatever we engage with in our mind repeatedly, we leave some traces and become a habit, something that our mind will incline to more and more, simply because it has learned to do so. The habit of sensual desire, of wanting something, the habit of ill will, the habit of cruelty, it could be any quality really. Every time we engage in such unwholesome qualities or actions, we feed those habitual patterns and over time they grow stronger. Every time we engage in them, we get better at them. Could be sensual desire, could be cruelty, could be envy, doesn't matter. And actually this um, overlaps very much with what we know nowadays from neuroscience about our brain not being so, uh, fixed, you know. Nowadays we know that our mind is very, or our brain I should say, is very plastic, that is, it is shapeable, that it is not just fixed. And nevertheless, once developed, those habits are extremely powerful, as you may know. They often can uh, determine our behavior, our choices, our actions, and can also make us feel helpless because we don't have the strength to resist their impulse. And it is for this reason that we really need to take good care of this mind and guard it from going even further into these habits that we know to be unwholesome. The Buddha says, Just as in the last months of the rainy season, in the autumn when the crops thicken, a cowherd would guard his cows by constantly tapping and poking them on his this side and that with a stick to check and curb them. Why is that? Because he sees that he could be flogged, imprisoned, fined or blamed if he let them stray into the crops. So too I saw in unwholesome states danger, degradation and defilement and in unwholesome states, the blessing of renunciation, the aspect of cleansing. When there are unwholesome mind states dominating the mind, when the cows are running wildly in our mind, then, like this cowherd, we need to mobilize all our mindfulness to really see what's getting on and going on and we need some inner clarity and commitment not to just get lost in those mind states. We need to be alert so we see when the cows are running off. And then he comes to the wholesome mind states. Practitioners, 
whatever a practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of one's mind. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of renunciation, one has abandoned the thought of sensual desire to cultivate the thought of renunciation, and then one's mind inclines to thoughts of renunciation. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of non-ill-will, one has abandoned the thought of ill-will to cultivate the thoughts of non-ill-will, and then one's mind inclines to thoughts of non-ill-will. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of non-cruelty, one has abandoned the thought of cruelty to cultivate the thought of non-cruelty, and then one's mind inclines to thoughts of non-cruelty. So, analogous, analogous to what we have heard before, this principle of habit formation also is true for the wholesome mind states. By engaging in wholesome thoughts, we develop the habit of those wholesome qualities and we can counteract and weaken the root poisons of desire and aversion. And this is what we are doing here, exactly, inclining the mind to thoughts of compassion again and again, over hours, over days. We allow compassion to grow, to become stronger and deeper, until it becomes a totally natural inclination and a consistent motivation in all our actions. And in the Buddha, the in the Sutta, the Buddha continues how to practice when the mind is fully established in wholesome mind states. Just as in the last months of the hot season, when all the crops have been brought inside the villages, a cowherd would guard his cows while staying at the root of a tree or out in the the open, since he needs only to be mindful that the cows are there. So too there was need for me only to be mindful that those states were there. So once the mind is in a state that is truly wholesome, basically we can just practice a more open awareness just being mindful of the wholesome mind state and we don't need to, you know, guide the mind back again so much. Unless, of course, like here now, in this context, our intention is to cultivate compassion as much as possible alongside with samadhi, with collectedness. So in this context, of course, um, we just stick with the compassion practice for the, for the duration of this retreat. So we don't just want to switch back to the awareness practice. But in normal Vipassana practice, in such a situation, we can more sit back and just be aware of the wholesome mind state. So... I would like now to just step back a little bit and try to summarize some of the important aspects of mind cultivation. What this discourse makes clear is that mental change or transformation 
is a process that emphasizes an orientation towards wholesome qualities. I don't know whether you have noticed, but what I find quite remarkable is that in this method, in this way of cultivation, we don't fight the unwholesome qualities, the destructive tendencies by somehow suppressing them or punishing ourselves. Rather, we are encouraged to bring in the wisdom that understands simply that those tendencies are unwholesome. And ultimately, only wisdom, insight into the unwholesome nature of these qualities will truly convince us to let go of those tendencies. Of course, we all could be forced into suppressing desire or ill will or cruelty, you know, like in some forms of child education that use rewards and punishments. But then the deeper layers of our heart-mind would remain totally untouched. This would be only a very superficial change. But as soon as the mind understands by itself through wisdom that those habits are destructive, it will feel inspired and motivated to become free from them. And then on this base, we incline the mind to the wholesome qualities and develop those habits that will lead naturally to a weakening and decrease of the unwholesome uh, habits. We don't fight the unwholesome habits, rather we focus on strengthening the good habits. Really, even if we would try extremely hard, it would be impossible to change our mind simply by applying willpower, as you may have find, found out by yourself also, you know, just by deciding that from today on, I will never ever have any judgmental thoughts about other people anymore. <laughs> we need to understand the, the, the karmic laws operating. We need to understand that everything arises and changes due to certain causes and conditions. Sayadaw Utejaniya says it so clearly. We don't get something just because we want it or just the way we want it. We can only get as much as there are causes and conditions in place for something to happen or how much we put into the practice according to our abilities. We cannot just make something happening by deciding that it's going to happen. But we do have the possibility of creating the causes and conditions that will lead to change. That's why, you know, the Buddha spoke about mind cultivation and he compared this process to the work of a farmer who wants to grow something. Like this farmer, we can prepare the soil so it's fertile, it's rich. We can sow the right seeds, we can water them and then we just let them grow. This is a gradual process that takes time and it takes steady application. On the micro level, 
What is happening here is that every mind moment has a conditioning effect on the next mind moment. And this effect is very, very small, very subtle, but it is still significant and it accumulates with repetition. So if we just keep inclining the mind towards compassion, over time compassion becomes more likely to re-arise. Guy Armstrong writes, The old karma of reactivity is replaced moment after moment by the new karma of the path. New patterns are created in the heart and mind based on the wholesome factors, mindfulness, wisdom and loving-kindness. The new volitional formations change our life we start to see that the path uses the law of karma. In fact, the path itself is a karmic unfolding. So we plant the seeds of change by consciously forming wholesome intentions moment by moment. And those co conscious intentions have a strong impact on our mind and over time can override the unconscious, habit-driven intentions. Over time we start to notice changes. We see how the reactivity decreases and how a sense of ease, of well-being grows. And the crucial thing of course, this process happens in each and every moment. In each moment a choice is being made by this inner boardroom whether we are aware of it or not. Actually, if we don't incline the mind consciously, then just any mental state that is present in that moment will be strengthened. So you could say we are basically cultivating something in every moment. We are always cultivating something and it's good if we know what we are cultivating and if we make a conscious choice. So, of course, yes, we cannot choose how, how life is going to treat us, what is going to happen to us, how other people act. We have no control over all these things, but we can always choose how we respond to these events and our response will impact the next mind moment. It's really totally up to me how I meet this moment. No one else can do this for me. What do I bring to this moment now? To this moment of irritation? To this moment of uh, hurt? To this moment of beauty? To this moment of peace? It's totally up to me. It really matters with which intention we act, what we choose. And, you know, if we really start to see this, it can be a little bit daunting because we realize, wow, I do have an impact in every moment. Haim Ginot, he was a teacher and child psychologist from Israel, once wrote, I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. 
It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power to make life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis is escalated or de-escalated and the person is humanized or dehumanized. The most important thing in the world, I don't know, probably people have different opinions on what is the most important thing in the world, but my, my feeling right now, my sense in this moment is the most important thing in the world is how we meet this moment now, the moment here. And that is why it's so great if we have developed wholesome habits like compassion because they help us here and now to meet this moment in a skillful way, in a caring way. And one last point. We plant all these seeds not knowing when and how their fruits will ripen. If our intentions are truly wholesome, if we cultivate wholesome qualities like compassion, renunciation, loving-kindness, samadhi, joy, whatever, then we can trust that they will bear wholesome fruit, that they will lead us unfailingly in the direction of greater happiness, of peace. But how this is going to happen, how fast, how slow, is beyond our control. We cannot force the maturing of the mind according to our wishes and ambitions. So really the only thing we can do is relax, let go of any attachment to goals and expectations and with trust and humility just focus on that which we can do right now, inclining our mind to the wholesome. I would like to close with a quote again by Guy Armstrong. Intention or karma is our only reliable rudder in the vast ocean of, a uncontrollable, of uncontrollable events that we call life. As we follow the intentions of awareness, investigation, concentration, loving-kindness, compassion and wisdom, we are heading for a harbor, and it is a safe harbor, for harbor is one of the synonyms the Buddha used for Nibbana, which is peaceful, the goal of the path. So let's sit for a moment.
you for your attention.